and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our, men- to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity here at the AAVMC. And on today's episode, we are talking about racialized pet parenting or pet ownership, if you're into that type of thing, ownership versus parenting, narratives. In other words, the lenses that we see and how we understand what pet ownership is, is influenced by the race of the pet owner, right? So to give a little bit of background, and we're going to kind of dive into this with my guests, but just to give a little bit of background, this was probably about, I don't know, a month or two ago. It was probably closer to two months ago. I was taking a midday break um, to scroll through Twitter, looking for something to entertain me during lunch. And I came across a tweet from a colleague to an article, the article that we'll be discussing today. Now, I'm a digger, so and I love rabbit holes. So I went down the rabbit hole to find out how did this article (laughs) from a sociologist I follow, how did I miss it the first time around, number one? And number two, how did it get back into my timeline? So long story short, a well-known sociologist, Tracy uh, Tracy McCottom, posted a super cute picture of her dog, Kirby, in a cute sweater out in the yard. It was April because somebody was like, it's hot. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. And so... A woman, a white woman replied, now Chessie is Black, and a respondent replied with an article by a veterinarian that cautioned against pet clothing in warm weather and warm climates. Her response wasn't very well received by Dr. Cottom or her followers because it was like, Look, it's just a picture of Kirby out in the yard, cute sweater. I don't, he doesn't look like he's like suffering. I'm sure that he gets really great care by Dr. Cottom. Fine, cool. Well, the woman, you know, she kind of was undeterred um, and she doubled down and she actually tagged PETA for backup. It was, it was bananas. It was bananas. Um, more than I signed up for for a midday Twitter break. <laughs> so I never saw PETA kind of come to her rescue, but the whole episode devolved into sparring between a white woman a black, and a black woman on what was the appropriate care for the latter's pet, right? And a veterinarian was the person that actually tweeted in and tagged today's guest, Dr. Adelia James, and her wonderful article called Unfit Stewards, the Role of the Intensive Pet Parenting Ideology in Constructing Racialized Narratives. That is a mouthful. Welcome to the show, Adelia. Welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. So for folks that maybe missed you uh, the last time, because we had you on the show about a year or so ago, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So I'm an assistant professor of sociology at Endicott College in Beverly, Massachusetts. 
My research interests are kind of race, class, gender issues, uh, inequalities broadly, but lately I've been really focusing on work occupations uh, and professional education. So yeah, so I'm sort of in the process of wrapping up my study from the past few years, looking at diversity in the veterinary medical profession and starting to produce work out of that. I'm so excited. So excited. So yes, we will definitely have you back on the show to talk about that. So, so how did you end up (laughs) doing this study on pet intensive pet parenting ideology? Yeah. The funny thing is like the study where I really started was looking at the underrepresentation of people of color in the veterinary medical profession. And I was going through like data charts from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, kind of looking for a new study and saw how there was such a large number of white people in the veterinary profession. At the time I was looking, it was like well over 90%. And this just general lack of diversity in the profession really interested me. For some reason, I thought it was a misprint. And I thought, no, no profession is like that homogenous, right? But it certainly was the case. And so I started collecting interviews with veterinary medical professionals, those who are in college, but also those who are employed to kind of get a sense of like, what's going on here? And this study where I was looking was actually kind of an offshoot of my main study, right? So my main study, I was particularly interested in trying to figure out, okay, what are the social forces that are keeping people of color out of the profession? I was also equally interested in how people within the profession kind of understand what's going on and whether their sort of understanding of why there is this lack of diversity might be shaping their behaviors in ways that might be perhaps exclusionary more than inclusionary. But then as I was starting to conduct a preliminary analysis of the data, I kept realizing there was this theme. Every time I asked people, why do you think there is an underrepresentation of people of color in the profession? Then they would immediately talk about racial, ethnic, and sometimes class differences in pet ownership. And so they would say something like, Black people don't have pets, right? And so if they don't have pets, they're not going to see a vet and they're not going to really think about going into the profession. Or Black people, there are Black people who own dogs, but they only use dogs for dog fighting. So these dogs are for utilitarian purposes. There's no reason for them to take them to the vet, right? So basically this idea that people of color have very different relationships with pets, like either no relationship at all, or one that was so utilitarian or different that youth of color would never imagine themselves going into a profession where they would spend all day caring for pets. So, so yeah, it was like a funny way about my study. And it's definitely sort of part of a larger puzzle of me trying to figure out what's going on here. But this theme was so salient, I realized pretty quickly I needed to do an in-depth analysis of that alone, right? Um, And go a little deeper with these narratives. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I I mean, I found it fascinating and I I saw myself (laughs) in this. Um, Once I sat down and read the article, I kind of tweeted, jumped back into the, the Twitter piece and was like, oh my goodness, this is one of the reasons why I don't go to the dog park anymore because it was such... And it is. After after reading it, I was like, we're going to try the dog park again. Maybe it's different. It's not. It was still very much a white space. And I mean, I've been very active on the association and the whole bit and, and all of this stuff. But I was just like, oh, right. People don't really talk to me. I mean, they talk 
to Barkley, my dog. And then they're like, oh, is he yours? And then it was like, no, 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 I'm just kind of walking. <laughs> they just kind of walk away. And, <laughs> and so I was just like, this is not entertaining. And he didn't seem to be having the big, much fun either. So, you know, it, it just was really interesting. So this idea that folks of color don't own pets, why do they think that? <laughs> if I back a, backing up a little bit, I think talking a little bit about my study, I think there's some some important things to know about the literature that currently exists. So first, there's a a small, very small, but really important body of social science research, mainly coming out of sociology, although some interdisciplinary departments as well, showing that white individuals, particularly like privileged, like middle or upper class, will construct these narratives that people of color have relationship with pets that are sort of very different and and questionable. And they basically use those narratives to then justify like surveilling or punishing or excluding people of color. A lot of the research has actually been in integrated neighborhoods, some of it actually looking at dog parks in integrated neighborhoods. There's a really great one, and I'm blanking on the author's name, but she is cited in my research, looking at actually my old neighborhood. (laughs) I'm in the Boston area where it gentrified and those who were coming in who were gentrifying said, let's create this dog park for everyone, right? This will be a way for us to unite ourselves with our neighbors. But instead, they made it pretty clear through body language and things like that, that actually pet owners of color were actually not really um, invited. So this research is really interesting the way that like, um, sometimes like there's this belief that like, dogs are this great way for people to bridge gaps and kind of become friends and things like that. But we see that there are these racial differences that dogs aren't really able to bridge this gap, but instead dogs are used for this surveillance punishment. I was looking at that literature and to me, I still had the question of like, how were they coming up with these narratives, right? We know that they have these narratives about like black people don't own pets or they think they, you know, black people and use them for dog fighting. But I was like, where is this coming from? So the first part of my article, I actually review existing research evidence to show that there's this dominant ideology in society that basically sociologists and other social science researchers hadn't really named yet. They've been kind of dancing around the idea, but hadn't really, really detailed. And that was the intensive pet parenting ideology. So I actually borrow the term intensive parenting from a classic study by sociologist Sharon Hayes um, from the early 1990s. The book is called The Cultural Contradictions of Motherhood. And she actually called it intensive mothering. And she argues, just like in a nutshell, that contemporary mothers are held to this like really high standard in terms of providing care for children. They're supposed to demonstrate like great love for their children by constantly listening to them, making sure they understand very deeply their desires and their needs, working tirelessly to acquire like all the best like toys and like things that will help their children grow and be happy. Contemporary mothers are expected to spend all this time engaged in tracking down extracurricular activities, right? All of these things, right? And this intensive mothering ideology is largely constructed and largely propagated by the white middle class. But what's really interesting is that Sharon Hayes and people who have sort of 
engage with her work have shown that a lot of working class mothers of all racial backgrounds and mothers of color feel like a strong need to adhere to this intensive mothering too. And that's because this intensive mothering has kind of made its way into organizational policies, right? We see working class mothers and women of color sort of um, held to the intensive mothering ideology, you know, in hospital settings and school settings mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And so I was seeing the same thing reflected in all of this research I was looking at in which they were talking about there was kind of this evolution of people kind of shifting, at least in the U.S. case, from seeing their dogs and cats as like things you have around the house, sometimes useful as like on the farm and things like that, sometimes used as guards, right? We're shifting from this utilitarian use to more of this like companionship and actually valuing animals for their companionship. You also see increasingly people of really all racial, ethnic and class backgrounds describing their dogs and cats as children and themselves as pet parents. So for me, it was very much I was seeing as much as we were seeing this development of this intensive mothering Mm -hmm. in relation to mothers and their human children, you were starting to see the same thing with people and their pets, spending more money on their pets, you know, advocating for dog parks, taking them to dog parks, going to the vet regularly, Mm -hmm. which was something that was not the norm even a few decades ago. Some of the vets I talked to were like, yeah, we didn't go to the vet, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) when I was a kid, that's just like, that's something almost new, right? To take them for preventative care. So I saw this, you know, these clear parallels of like intensely loving your pet, spending a lot of money on them, spending a lot of time on them. And so for me, that's why I described it as this intensive pet parenting ideology. Since the intensive pet parenting ideology, much like the intensive mothering ideology, is very much constructed by the white middle class, you see like in that tweet, you know, privileged white people, um, particularly pet owners, seeing themselves as moral authorities Mm. who have this responsibility they see to surveil and regulate other people's pets, particularly people of color. Because it's sort of constructed by the white middle class and these white middle class norms, there's kind of this assumption, underlying assumption that people of color must have their own other set of norms around Mm. pet human relationships. And they probably don't look like ours, but ours are the right, you know, of the relationship. So the second thing I did in the article is like after I established that like, yeah, there's research evidence to show that there's this intensive pet pairing ideology. I then wanted to connect it to what I was seeing. Like I said, the, you know, as soon as I asked people, asked people about the lack of people of color in veterinary medicine, they would talk about these narratives of these different relationships, right? Mm-hmm. So they would say things I've already mentioned that they assumed that Black and they would also sometimes add to Latinx people are using dogs for dog fighting or for guarding. And what was probably the most disturbing, I think, I mean, it was all very disturbing, the stereotypes, <laughs> but the one was that Asian people use pets for, for food, like dogs for food. So there would be no reason for them to go to the vet and sort of develop this like sort of lifelong interest in going to veterinary yeah. medicine. So, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, you know, these are things that I have heard for years during the course of my career. And, you know, about 20 years ago, we were just chatting before we started 
a show about a wonderful colleague who I hold in, in very high regard, Dr. Ronnie Elmore from K-State, wrote an article that really said, suggested, well, if folks of color just own more pets, then, then they would go to the veterinarian and then they would see the veterinarian and then they would have that role model and then they'd want to go into vet med. And I was just like, I remember even 20 years ago thinking, I mean, okay, I grew up with this many animals. Why do you think that we don't own pets in much larger numbers. And and if we're not going to seek veterinary care, I mean, well, one, pet ownership should be predictive, but it's not necessarily predictive of seeking out veterinary care, right? So that's one thing. And then two, if we're not going to your clinic, where do you think we might actually be going? Like maybe we're making some different choices that you don't really understand. And, and you know, it's a, it's a, it, I, it's a refrain that I've been saying for 20, over 20 years. <laughs> and so, you know, this idea of being monitored and surveilled, it also, you know, in, in your research made me think about some of the challenges that we talk about in rescue work, right? And some of the extraordinary, you want to talk about intensive, <laughs> you know, intensive pet parenting ideologies you know, you have to have this kind of house and it needs to have a fence this big. And how many hours are you spending at home with, you know, Fido and Fluffy and all of this? Stuff? I mean, there's so many folks that just can't even get a rescue animal because the criteria and expectations of what pet ownership should look like for this animal are so high. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just I mean, and I've told people a lot of people have heard me tell this story, Adelia, that. I am an adoptive mom. I adopted a 12-year-old almost 10 years ago. And and our my dog died shortly after our adoption was finalized, but we were still having visits from our social worker for like a little aftercare period. And we tried to get a rescue animal and they wanted home visits. And I was like, okay, but this state gave me a whole human to finish raising. And you want to come to my house to look around behind a dog? Are you nuts? <laughs> that is not happening. And that's how I ended up with my dog off of Craigslist, right? And so, because I was so offended that I was like, I think literally I jumped through all of these hoops and I'm raising a human. <laughs> and yeah. you want to come do a home visit, right? So it, it certainly starts to kind of, we see this ideology and this these expectations that come with it in a lot of different places. So were you were you surprised by the findings? Like, were you surprised by kind of what you were hearing and how, frankly, pervasive it was from other veterinary professionals? I wasn't surprised. Like, I've heard these narratives yeah. before. What I was surprised that it was, I heard it from so many vets. And I was surprised that I heard it from so many people of different racial ethnic backgrounds. And I should say, to be clear, the ones, the stereotypes about Asian Americans, I know people of color sort of mentioned that, that seemed to be sort of the most extreme of the cultural narratives that people of color, no, this is ridiculous. But I mean, it was so easy for people to say, oh, Black and Latinx people don't have pets or when they have them, they don't know how to take care of them. They just said it so nonchalant, so nonchalantly. And it was just so many people had said it. And it was so many people of so many different backgrounds, which was the surprising part for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, So for you, what did you find the most 
striking. And, you know, if, if you had one thing that you had to say, look, VetMed, hello, 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 <laughs> pay attention to this thing from this study. I think for me, I think about the implications of it, right? So if you have these narratives, right? Could these narratives be shaping your behaviors in that orgs in a way that you hadn't really thought about? As I'm sort of continuing to sort of do some preliminary analyses of this data, I'm finding that, you know, those people who said, oh, people of color don't have pets or they don't love pets or they don't know how to take care of them. And that's why they're not interested in the veterinary profession. A lot of those people kind of give up on trying to be helpful in terms of increasing diversity in the profession. Mm -hmm. So they'll say like, I think it's really important and I wish there were more people of color in the profession, but what what can I do? There are these cultural differences that I just can't bridge. I can't force Black people to love animals. I can't mentor somebody um, in the profession who just doesn't have that emotional attachment to animals or have this lifelong lifelong long experience of taking care of animals. So for me, I think the biggest, like, I think we're all aware of the narratives. I think in that way, that part isn't too surprising. Although for some people, I shouldn't make a blanket statement, but I think I want people to think about the implications. If you hold on to these narratives, is it actually stopping you from actually doing something about the lack of diversity? Are you finding excuses to say like, yeah, you know, targeted recruitment won't work or affirmative action won't work or creating multicultural affinity groups won't work because, you know, it's too much of a cultural barrier. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm even thinking about for, for folks on admissions committees who are interviewing students and, and there is this, you know, a lot of students and applicants kind of are, um, you know, when they talk about, when you ask, you know, why do you want to be, a, I love animals and da, 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 right. So if an applicant of color doesn't default to the, I love my animals, it, it almost seems like there might be a little hole there for folks to kind of question like, oh, but you don't have this kind of connection. And, you know, in the profession, we talk about the importance of the human-animal bond, right? And and it is an important thing, but if you really kind of have these biases that that certain groups just don't, are culturally, uh, it's just not a fit to create this bond, then how do you, it doesn't work. Admissions <laughs> <Yeah>. doesn't work. <laughs> I think, and it's too, it's not only the assumption that they don't love animals or don't have this bond. I think also too, as I dig a little deeper, I'll probably see that people actually, they'll talk about people loving their animals, but just sort of in a different way. Well, a really good example of that, right, is in the article, I talk about this one young white woman who, as part of her, I think, like pre-vet hours worked at a clinic Mm -hmm. and she talked about, and it was in the Midwest and all white vets. And there was this black woman who would come in with her dog and she was like working class, low income, may not even have been working, but would take a cab to the vet office. She would say that sometimes she wouldn't eat to make sure that her dog got food and that her dog got proper vet services. And all the vets in the office were like, she's completely irresponsible. This is ridiculous. And then 
At the same time, there was another guy who came in who clearly hadn't been taking care of this cat that he had. The cat got a UTI, a really bad UTI. But the whole time, all the vets said like, oh, look at how much he loves this cat. You know, like this guy, you know, we typically don't associate, you know, guys with having love for cats, right? Like, so I think it's like, even if the evidence is there, (laughs) that like a person of color in a particular case loves an animal, it can be interpreted and as like, see, this is just proof that you shouldn't have had this dog in the first place if you're not eating, if you have to take a cab uh, to take them to the vet. So I think that's both of those are pretty frightening assumptions that they don't love animals or there's only one way to love an animal. And thus, so thus they're constantly looking through this one particular lens and will miss the way people of color love their animals in a variety of ways. Right. And so, you know, we were also talking about seeing this pet parenting ideology in communities of color is actually not hard. (laughs) It's out there. (laughs) And so, you know, we were talking about some of our favorite social media accounts where we can find very intensive (laughs) parenting ideologies, myself included. I, Mm -hmm. I count myself among those folks and I hope to be reincarnated one day as one of my own pets. Like, I'm like, can I have an owner like me? <laughs> I'm the same way. I mean, my, my cat was my first baby and she's considered the sister of my two human children. Like yes. she just says she's part. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not hard. Like you said, to it's find. Yeah. Yeah. And so I find myself often, one of the accounts that I, I follow is black people pets on Instagram. I love that account. Folks are completely, it's bananas. I mean, it's sweet, it's wonderful, but you get to see the full breadth and scope of the human-animal bond with Black folks uh, just living and loving their critters. And and it's just the, the outfits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. The outfits, the foods, the toys, the, I mean, it's, it's pretty intense, right? And we were also talking about, like, on Facebook, there's the, a group of, like, Black women who love furry, like, furry critters. I can't remember what the, the thing is, but, but, you know, there are 28,000 people in this Facebook group. Like, 28,000. No, we have pets. <laughs> And there are like a dozen posts a day. And what I find particularly interesting about some of these accounts are the way that not only is there a demonstration of this ideology that you talk about in your paper, right? But for some of them, like the Facebook group, it is a closed group, right? And so, and and they scream. <laughs> they yeah. do scream. You need to be, you, your profile needs to say black lady (laughs) to get in that space. Right. (laughs) But there is this cultural phenomenon that even happens in that space where, yes, these folks are like, this is my child. Mm. This is one of my children and all the other women in the community of this, this particular Facebook community are referred to as aunties. Mm. Right. And so this idea that this doesn't exist anywhere, (laughs) you know, in these communities is so it's mind blowing to me. And I have a hard time wrapping my head around it because I live 
in this space, right? I live in this space and, and I'm like, how do you not see this? Like it's all over the internet. Like, how do you not see this? And to the point where you don't see it that such that a woman on Twitter tags PETA <laughs> to come get this famous black woman together about her dog. Like it's really baffling. Well, you brought up a really good point too about how like divided social media can be. In some ways we like to pretend like you have access to all, well, you have access to all the networks, but you don't see all the networks. That is mm-hmm. to say, a lot of these are closed groups for the reason that I gave, right? Yeah. <laughs> the surveillance and punishment, right? So they want to keep it at a closed group. Um, and also I think about my Twitter feeds, I get a lot of, you know, I get a lot of these videos, right? About Black people and their dogs and that just come up in my feed, but because I'm friends with certain people, right? And in these particular networks. And so I think in some ways, people might be isolating themselves in ways that they, you know, I, it, it, it reminds me a lot. It's kind of akin to the argument that would be brought up sometimes about why um, Black and Latinx people don't have pets. And they would say, well, they live in urban centers. They live in cities. So they wouldn't have the room for dogs and cats. But this is coming from people who grew up in rural and suburban areas. And so I'm like, where are you getting this information? Like, what are your assumptions about urban areas? And also what are your assumptions about all Black and Latin ex-people living in urban areas, right? I just think that when people, as like I said, I think we like to think that social media opens us up to the world, but I don't think it does as much as, yeah, you realize. Yeah. You can become yeah. siloed in a different way. Just like you become siloed in yeah. these racially and class segregated neighborhoods where people live. That can happen on social media as well. It absolutely does. And I mean, this is kind of what, you know, I I remember when I first joined Twitter way, 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 way back in the day. And I was like, okay, so how do I get to Black Twitter? (laughs) (laughs) Right? How do I get to Black Twitter? And it it took a long time for me to like follow the right people and then follow the other right people. And like, poof, then I was there. And I was like, okay, it is a destination, kind of, (laughs) but not really, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's like my favorite people talking about the different types of Twitter. I also very similarly when I got on was like, I need to find Black Twitter. And I think it's always fun when I see these posts like, so I discovered XX, you know, Twitter, you Uh know, some, you know, this Twitter or that Twitter, right? Like there's all these little like networks that that are that somehow remain hidden. Yeah. So if you are on social media viewers and listeners, shake up your algorithm and follow some folks that you wouldn't normally follow. <laughs> so yeah. that some other folks get in there and don't get me wrong. I'm sure that there are lots of folks out there that are probably like, no, Lisa, gatekeep, gatekeep. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but I think that, that there are certainly stories and narratives that you're missing because very much like IRL in real life, there's still a lot of segregation, right, in um, in these virtual spaces as well. So, you know, you talked a bit about the mothering, parenting language and, and kind of how you got to that. And yes, Barkley is my baby. My, I call him my baby dog. But did you, as you were writing this, did you think about how... I guess, you know, this issue of ownership versus parenting, because I mean, it definitely is an issue, certainly in some corners of the animal taking caretaking, caregiving world. (laughs) Yeah. 
I was looking at some animal study stuff in preparation for writing this. And basically every book chapter and article I left, I finished the sort of the takeaway was people have somewhat ambivalent relationships with their pets, right? So like on some level, they recognize that they own these pets, right? Like, you know, they, they ownership in some ways, and there's this distinct power relationship. But on the other hand, people also really see their pets as thinking and feeling beings who are deserving of some some degree of autonomy and a great deal of respect and a great deal of love. So people are like, you see how throughout this interview, I use, I go between pet owner and pet. I think sometimes, yeah, that like, you kind of think about them in the same sort of breath. Um, Some people have, though, speculated that the reason why we're seeing this contemporary shift of using less of this ownership language and more of this this pet parenting relationship could be due to, like, the increase in the animal rights movements, right? Seeing them from purely wild or domestic domesticated work animals that are just Mm -hmm. there to, like, do work for us to kind of seeing these as companions who are actually seem to provide love. We create our little relationships with them and our little languages and things like that. There's also, I notice in the, in the literature looking at this, that some people have argued that it could be related to actually the falling birth rate um, in the U S and there's this theory that people are increasingly treating their pets like children as like a replacement for human children. Although I kind of saw enough evidence for me to like not agree with that. And there were some really good arguments that like people have, you know, mixed species families, right? Like my own, like I talked yeah. about like my cat's my first baby and the she's now the sibling of my human children. We see that a lot actually. So this theory that people are seeing their pets as like replacement children isn't really sort of adding up. But yeah, it was just funny to go through all of these, like I said, this literature to see that researchers are kind of like, people have complicated relationships with their pets. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, I, I wouldn't have characterized it as complicated, but yeah, I guess, I guess for some I think it's complicated in that there's still some hangovers of like, so like, for instance, like we now call it pet adoption instead of saying you're like picking up a dog from the pound, right? Like there's all this language to shift it to parenting, but then like you still have to get like dog licenses, right? And that kind of feels like objectifying, like, oh, got to get this dog Mm -hmm. license Mm -hmm. for my baby. So I think what it might be is like, you're right people themselves don't feel conflicted yeah, yeah. about it, but society as a whole is still kind of like catching up. <laughs> like, yeah. um, there's still some like policies and, yeah. and other people who see pet human relationships very differently. Yeah. I mean, there, there does definitely seem to be a wide diversity, right? And I mean, but just like anything, you see shades of that across every demographic, right? And so this this idea that, I mean, and, and, you know, we talked about this before we started the show that, you know, some folks will say, oh, African-Americans don't like dogs because, of, you know, oh my goodness, the dogs in the civil rights movement, how they had the dogs. And, and I'm like, yeah, but a lot of those people still had dogs. Yeah. <laughs> they literally went home to dogs <laughs> and yeah. cats and whatever, you know, whatever. And, and how do we reconcile 
that. And, and, you know, it's definitely something I continue to kind of spend a lot of time thinking about, because I do get a lot of questions about, well, how does this jive? And how does, do people really like animals? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, yeah. 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 I I found there's enough and there's always great to get more evidence and more updated evidence, but there is enough evidence so far to show that there's as much variation and like how people interact with their their pets across like racial ethnic differences within each racial ethnic group you're going to just find the spectrum so yeah but I'm, i'm hoping for even more studies showing that because right now a lot of the new stuff that is coming out is kind of just trying to figure out if people of color own pets but that doesn't give us much information yeah 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 and i mean i imagine class also has to do I do think that class probably also plays a role because I mean, I think about, and again, this is, this is across demographics, I'm sure, but the type of pet owner that I am now is not the type of pet owner I was raised to be (laughs) like, you know, Barkley sleeps in the bed, (laughs) like not on the bed. He sleeps in the bed. Right. And my parents, they are not horrified anymore. (laughs) (laughs) They're not horrified anymore, but the last dog that they also had when they are complete empty nesters, everybody's been gone for years. You know, the the dog that they had had a very, very different life than the one that I grew up with, which we did have a pet for, you know, human animal bond and, and all of that. And we love that animal very much. But as I tell people all the time, he got baby aspirin and Robitussin just like the rest of us. <laughs> and, you know, that was veterinary care. My parents were like, we have a gate. He's not exposed to rabies. I know before anybody sends me comments, like we know, <laughs> you know, but, you know, the type of animal owner slash pet parent that I and the members of my family who have pets now are is just radically different than one generation ago, one yeah. generation ago. And I think that that there may have also be kind of um, an anchoring to these images that that folks had about what pet ownership should look like, that it was just really anchored in a very different period that it's just not like that anymore. Yeah. I yeah. I feel like I saw some evidence of that. They did. I think I saw like one study that said, you know, there seemed to be some possibility that class is a bigger like impact on sort of pet human relationships than race. In this particular study, they saw no significant impact of race, but they did see some significance with class. But I also was going to add generational too, because the story that you described very much, I heard, and it was kind of across like class groups as well. Like I knew some people whose parents were like doctors and nurses and they were like, yeah, that dog stays outside. Like, and it was just like, because that's how they grew up with dogs. Right. And so, and now they're like, oh, the idea of like my dog being outside all the time, I would never do that. And so for me, that kind of speaks to the possibility of generational differences as well. Oh, that's such a great point. And so, yeah, again, personal story. Like, so our dog was only allowed in the tiled part of the house, right? And that that was it. No carpet. And for God's sake, say, say off of the furniture. Of course, now, you know, during the pandemic, my parents got hardwood floors. We have not yet been to visit with, with Barkley. But in theory, <laughs> now Barkley should have run of the house. 
Yeah. I'm not going to bet on that. <laughs> like, like, I'm not going to bet that Ann and Angie are going to let Barkley run all over the house, despite the fact that there's no more carpet. But I've been thinking about, well, what does that translate to, right? Like what for them is their new comfort level with the house and, and all of these things, right? And again, it doesn't, it's not a reflection on how much they love their pets mm-hmm. at all. It's just animals dirty, the animals stay out of this part of the house, right? And so those kinds of things. So based on all of the research that you've done, and I do, before I let you go, want to talk a little bit about the discrimination studies that you've been doing, but based on this particular piece, what recommendations can you really kind of give us in the profession when it comes to, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging in terms of what does this mean for, what should it mean for the profession? The first thing I think about, which I think is one of the most obvious is making um, perhaps like training sessions or something like that, where people can sort of, um, like have an opportunity to reflect on any like racialized narratives they have Mm -hmm. around pet human relationships. And going back to what I was saying before, if you sort of believe in these narratives, might that be impacting your behavior in some way that you're actually excluding people of color out of the profession, right? You might not have made that connection, but perhaps in a training session, you reflecting on those narratives and how that might cause you to not, you know, be involved in recruitment or something like that would be would be key. The also the other thing I was thinking about too was like it might be really useful to incorporate the practices and knowledges of of people of color um, into vet schools and workplaces. That would also be beneficial, right? Because then you shift from this like okay, showing that like people of color do have a variety of relationships with their pets to actually, I think inclusion would really mean like, okay. And then we also value the knowledge and practices coming out of these communities. So I was actually thinking, and I don't know if you saw this the other day, um, there was an NPR article um, about a book that's coming out that's chronicling the Compton Cowboys. Have you heard about this? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I feel like we've been, or we, the journalists have been talking about the Compton Cowboys, particularly since the Black Lives Matter protests of the summer of 2020. Um, they're a horseback riding club. And just looking at the article, they started in 1988 and, you know, getting um, young Black boys in particular to a ranch that's basically within city limits is very much an urban ranch to sort of reclaim this history of Black cowboys. And it just made me think reading that article, like, what would it mean if like that schools, for instance, really develop partnerships with Compton Cowboys or other groups who are engaged in, you know, animal practice, right? And really learning from them. Like, I'm sure there's like this long, rich history of knowledge we could be like sort of engaging with among sort of Black cowboys who took care of horses and things like that. So for me, I think trying to push people to actually seeing pet human relationships among people of color is something that's valuable. Mm. I think would be really good. And I can kind of see it through that sort of partnership. I did have, for example, one person in my study talk about when she was in vet school, they would go to reservations and indigenous reservations 
to offer free medical care. But very quickly, what they realized what they should be doing is actually sharing knowledge. So like they would give space to like the elders of the tribe to like, tell me about like how if you saw this animal like sick, like what would you do? Right. Mm -hmm. And they were so surprised that like they turned the tables like that and they really appreciated it. And like brought them back constantly, like to come back to um, the reservation to help with animals and to sort of foster these bonds with indigenous youth there. So for me, I think empowering people of color who not only say like, oh, you have similar relationships with your animals as we do, but to actually say you might have distinct cultural practices that are valued to everyone. Yeah, thanks so much for for mentioning the Compton Cowboys. I'll also mention like the, you know, the Bell Pickett Rodeo with the Black Cowboys, um, which is loads of fun down here in the DMV area each year. So if you're in the area, check it out. It's it's, it's a good time. Uh, it's in September the 24th, it says here, <laughs> just in case anybody is, is wondering. But yeah, uh, and for folks that are watching online, I've dropped the article to Dr. James's article in the chat, as well as a link uh, to the Wikipedia page, at least for uh, Compton Cowboys. Now, before I let you go, what is going on with your larger study? I'm writing a book manuscript. I think I, to be honest, was like going back and forth, like, do I have enough data? I've never done this before. But this summer, I really sort of really committed to it. So I'm in the midst of writing and it's really fun. It's one big puzzle. (laughs) I don't know when it'll get done, but it's been really amazing, really interesting. And I should add for as much as this article focused on the negatives, like I'm really looking forward to in book form and maybe even article form to talk about some of the activism that's going on because I don't want it to picture it as like the profession doesn't care because that's not true. There's certainly people and people across racial, ethnic and class backgrounds that are doing work. So if anything, I would love to come back to like talk about that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I am really, really excited about the work that you're doing. And, um, you know, yeah, some of it does kind of, show some ugly things (laughs) that we all need to work on. And that's, but that's life, right? That, that is, that's why we do what we do, but there are also some really great things that, that come out of it. Some great lessons. So as I wrap up, definitely folks go, if you happen to take a left turn, you might end up in black Twitter. Um, but it's easier to end up on black Instagram, I think, than it is to get on black Twitter. But definitely go and follow accounts like Black People Pets. And don't worry when you, any Instagram user knows that once you hit follow, it'll drop down and show you all the other accounts that are similar. And you can really see what's happening kind of beyond the looking glass, right? Or what you thought might be happening because there are just some wonderful, wonderful accounts out there showing a variety of different kinds of people with different kinds of animals. There's a guy, he's on TikTok and on uh, Instagram. I just, I can't remember his name, but his his chihuahua, his emotional support chihuahua's name is EJ. And, (laughs) And like, their morning routine is better than mine. Like, you know, she, she, he washes EJ's face and he wipes her paws and she's got jewelry and she has all of these things. And as I'm thinking of, you know, what I've seen on that account for the last month, you know, he is uh, one of those folks where there are folks out in the profession who would have said, oh, this is irresponsible because EJ lives 
again, a life of comfort. (laughs) (laughs) But EJ's person at one point, and so thereby also EJ, were homeless not that long ago, right? But EJ is a priority for this man. And like, you know, he takes extraordinarily good care of this dog. And you know, seeing what that dog means to him to me is one of those things where I'm always like, yeah, this is, this is why I do this work. <laughs> this is, this is why I do this work. So, okay. So we've got, uh, oh, there are a couple of things. So thanks so much for the important topic. I've been to ED, uh, to a DEI lecture given by a black American person emphasizing that black people don't love dogs. That's not true. With her presentation started with black people being chased by police dogs in Dr. King era of Alabama, her talk then proceeded to say not all, hashtag not all, um, were afraid of dogs, but it was really too late after seeing those graphic photos. And again, I think it is one of those moments where folks kind of anchor an image of there's a famous there's there's several sadly famous images of like you know German shepherds lunging at um, civil rights protesters and and it is hard to get that imagery once you've seen it to move past it right to me it's not only the privileged voice leading the narrative but I, I think we all need to be careful yes not to perpetuate the wrong stereotypes try to put active efforts into changing it thank you very very much so yeah for fellow folks doing EDI or DEI work, um, don't say we don't like pets. Like, it's not true. <laughs> it's not It's not true. And don't show that picture because it, it, it really does help people, unfortunately, anchor in a period of time that, you know, is, is okay, well, that's a whole nother, that's a different podcast. It helps people anchor a particular image of, of Black folks and animals. That's what I want to say, because we're still... So working on some of the other stuff. Anyway, <laughs> Dilly, thank you so much for being on the show today. Such a wonderful conversation and such a great paper. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah. So this has been another episode of AABMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Again, to my guest, Dr. James, thank you for joining. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and like us on Facebook under AABMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. And stay tuned. We will have more shows this summer. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching.